Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Coming up on Objection to the Rule, this week in America, the trade war intensifies with Trump's announcement of 25% tariffs on Chinese imports. The Chinese government has promised a response. North Korea's supreme leader, Kim Jong-un, met with President Trump in Singapore with more pomp than circumstance. Sessions uses the Bible to justify taking children from their parents if they cross our borders illegally. And Manafort goes to jail. Around the world, soccer fans are cheering their favorite national teams in the World Cup. Muslims are celebrating Eid. And the UK is divided over Brexit. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Objection to the Rule starts right now. Welcome to News and Politics, served with some Brooklyn grid on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm Rosie, here in the studio with Violet and Ellie, and Ori, joining us by phone. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So, um, shall we start? Sure. Uh, so, first up, uh, New York City has um, finally moving forward with its styrofoam ban. Um, this is a project that started in 2013, and in 2015, the city officially banned any styrofoam for use uh, throughout the metropolitan area, including in restaurants and food trucks, uh, which are big users. And these uh, industries sued the city in 2015, and uh, until this point, uh, the suit was in place. They initially won the suit and forced uh, the Department of Sanitation to... um, to prove that the, uh, the items could be recycled or not be recycled through an independent study. Um, and now they, uh, they, they eventually proved that it could not be recycled. So the ban starts in 2019. All styrofoam will be banned. Um, so I'm, first off, I'm curious, uh, why do you think these uh, industries have been so resistant to uh, to accepting the ban of styrofoam? Well, I would like to start with Ori because we don't want to forget our uh, our our callers. So go ahead and 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 start, Ori. Well, I think there's the things. I think there's a lot of reasons why you know this could be contentious, especially for larger businesses, food vendors. Um, I'd be interested to see the cost analysis between styrofoam and other types of containers. Um, but there's always been this idea of cheap cost over a safe and healthy environment, right? That's why we have so many issues um, around the globe um, with things compromising the integrity of the environment in deference to business goals. So I'm curious to know about what the business impact would be, but... You know, I think maybe businesses just need to bite the bullet and, you know, make this transition because we have so many landfills filling up because of the use of, of styrofoam and other disposables. I can answer the uh, the cost impact. Um, it will cost three to four cents more for the alternative container to the styrofoam container. So definitely it is something they've been doing because of cost, a styrofoam is the cheapest container that you can use, um, aside from no container at all. And um, there are whole industries that will be impacted, people who make styrofoam products. So before, I can understand one point of view, how 
um, before you put a whole industry out of business. Um, because there, there are several businesses that are, that are dependent on this. There are the people who distribute it. There are the people who make it. And then there is the materials. And so this is a whole entire ecosystem that's going to be removed from New York City. And um, before we decide to do that and impact all these people's lives, we should make sure that we can't recycle it. And, um, and I understand why they fought so much for it. So uh, that I can understand. Ellie, how do you feel about the styrofoam ban? I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who lives in Chicago, and she uh, is part of, excuse me, she uh, works with actually a lot of the food truck alliances, especially which are run by very sleep, you know, mixed status immigrants. And so there is one hand where it's like they are relying on incredibly low cost styrofoam in order to make that kind of living and to, you know, in order to cut costs and not cut costs on their quality of food, for example, and keep communities thriving. But on the other hand, you know, this is where I, my feelings about like subsidy, like getting subsidies, especially for communities that are relying on styrofoam and for the industry at large that, um, that Rosie was speaking to. Um, you know, when it's like providing these alternatives, how do we transfer those within one industry essentially into another without hurting their, you know, livelihood ultimately? Good point. You know, one thing that, uh, uh, that was brought up, uh, mentioned briefly was the fact that, um, why, um, if these things were not uh, biodegradable, why hasn't uh, there been an initiative to encourage businesses to create an alternative? And this is seems like such an abrupt announcement. Don't get me wrong. I don't want styrofoam. And if it is not biodegradable and not recyclable, then we should not be using it. We live in a age where our environment is really on the brink and where we should have done all these things years ago. Now we're basically fighting for the last bit of it. So there has been no education or no attempt to divert industries into making something else. It just either abandon this and move on. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you both make good points. I think that even though we live in a very progressive city, I don't think it's ultimately going to do things unless uh, it's been shown that it's losing money somehow. So I think the Department of Sanitation was losing money because there's nowhere to put all of this waste, you know? So it makes sense that you should be able to transfer the cost of dealing with the waste to at least temporary subsidies until these materials are more readily available. Because the problem is that these materials are still very new, these alternatives to styrofoam. So that's why they're more expensive, you know? Well, what are some of the alternatives that they have for styrofoam other than... um there is that uh, biodegradable paper container, thick paper mm-hmm. container, which is... Um, but what other alternatives are there? There are some biomaterials just uh, made out of uh, more sustainably produced and more easily recyclable. So they're... You know, styrofoam is some sort of plastic uh, byproduct material. So these are plastic, but they're made out of uh, organic materials. So it's more easy for them to be renewable. And why is uh, why is it taking until 2019? Do you think <laughs> to put this ban in place? It seems like a, a bit of a a wait for something that I think is is urgent, and that they've been waiting for three years. They've been fighting this in mm-hmm. court for three years. The city of New York. Yeah, I um I think well the the lawsuit is the most obvious uh, thing in the you know the industry uh, 
fighting against it, uniting to fight against it. Um, and in fact, even now, uh, I believe there's an exemption for businesses that make under $500,000 annually. Uh, so they're able to be exempt, which helps a lot of the very small and, uh, and perhaps, um, you know, run by, uh, lower income, uh, groups. Um, but, uh, I think it all comes down to money. You know, people will fight as long as they can to say, to protect their bottom line. Do you think it will be overturned the way that the plastic bag ban was just thrown out? I hope not. <laughs> Let's get rid of the styrofoam. I know. I'm surprised that we've been using it this long. I don't know if you feel the same way, Ori, but whenever I see us, if somebody serves me something in a styrofoam cup, I, I do get grossed out because styrofoam falls apart so easily. And I know it's dangerous to consume styrofoam. So... I don't know why anyone would want to be served in on a styrofoam plate or cup or, or container. Yeah, they're generally, I mean, from a personal perspective, I think they're, like, they're really hard to deal with. Like, you can't microwave them, which is kind of annoying. They get all weird and, and melty, and then you're like, am I eating, like, melted styrofoam in my food? Um, I was interestingly looking at different eco-friendly substitutes, and I just randomly found things that people are making. There's actually a styrofoam that's made out of mushrooms, um, which I think is really interesting. And then there's also, like, you know, styrofoam is also used as packing peanuts, um, for instance, and they've made packing peanuts out of cornstarch. And then, obviously, the thing about that has come up a lot is that these newer um, alternatives are going to be more costly, are going to be probably less produced, um, so how, I, I really think that important question of, you know, funding innovation, providing subsidies, um, pushing the styrofoam makers to lead the way in creating alternative solutions that are both cost effective and economic, or ec- um, environmentally friendly. Um, you know, the one that's able to do that is going to win out. How do you feel about a program or not a program where, um, where, People can, uh, businesses can adopt a policy where if you bring your own container, um, uh, you can take away in your own container or you can take your leftovers in your own container to go if you are picking up. How do you feel about uh, the viability of that? I wonder what that would cause from a health enforcement perspective. I feel like if you have people just bringing in their own random containers, there might be an issue with that, like with with sanitation um but i do think it's interesting well i'm glad that they have made this styrofoam ban because this is um i mean we have not been treating um the earth properly we have been putting money over our own safety our own environment and our own livelihoods in essence um but I think it's also time for some music. And um, after the break, um, we've got local and national headlines. Uh, make sure to check out RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. Discover all the shows we offer, and you can take us with you. Just download the Radio Free Brooklyn app in the App Store or Google Play. We'll be right back with more Objection to the Rule after this short musical break. And also, just remember, I also have Radio Free Brooklyn app on my phone, and I am constantly playing Radio Free Brooklyn.
Should have moved to Nashville a long time ago But New York's a hard place to leave Once you call it home I left the city And I moved up north Not as far as Woodstock But I still felt that country warmth How do you leave your home When you know it'll break your heart But how do you stay in a place so long When your mind just needs a brand new start Whoa, whoa I don't know
And the thought that scares me the most Is knowing they'll all slip away But everyone's in a long while The sun shines right through your back door And the bed doesn't seem so bad And the pain just don't hurt Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. You are listening to Sister Antics. Um, They are a band, two wonderful babes who left New York and who are now living in Nashville to pursue their dreams of being a country music duo. Um, You heard three of their songs. Um, Let's talk about what's going on around the nation. The summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un in Singapore was ostentatious with ceremony. After the smiling and shaking hands, many Americans are wondering what was the tangible result of this highly dramatized meeting. Was it real? What are we expecting next? Was it just a theatrical performance by two world leaders and nothing is going to come of it? What will happen? Because there isn't anything in writing and there is nothing signed. What's going to happen? Well, obviously, Trump is a genius, you know? He just, he felt him out. (laughs) It took him like 30 seconds and he said, This is a good dude. And he was like, I'm going to make the perfect plan. So we're safe. We are totally safe. They love each other. 
Yeah, I mean, with the the CNN article that we were briefing on, the it kind of seems that it's coming out as still underwhelming in comparison to Obama's Iran deal. But my feeling also about it is like, and this is what uh, Aaron Miller had been saying, that it's kind of you're digging into the history books in order to build your legacy because you're not doing that well in your own home turf. And so it's like, how do I build a bigger, like, you know, single larger events to at least kind of create that legacy and just use history as your as you're like just taking advantage of like old bad blood, if you will, within our foreign politics. So, but I don't know. It's just, it's smart, but it was also underwhelming. I agree, Violet. Laurie? I'm just really wondering where this whole America First platform has gone. (laughs) I would like to know when we are going to start looking at more domestic-related issues, whether it be the growing homeless populations across the country or the fact that we are still having issues with inaccessible health care. Maybe because they weren't able to get that success that they wanted with, you know, repealing and replacing Obamacare. Maybe that's why the shift now is trying to fix these um, long-time political issues, whether it be the Middle East or, you know, the um, international issues with North Korea and South Korea. I just, it, it seems very odd and it seems very out of place. As far as what actually happened at the summit, time will only tell. Um, if we see the denuclearization, if we see the improvement of human rights in North Korea, um, I can't say that those things won't happen, but we haven't seen them yet. Um, and what we have seen is, you know, what a lot of people consider pageantry. It's obvious to me, at least, that um, President Trump is not a detail man. Um, I um, He's the sort of man who will shake hands, smile, uh, unsolicited commentary, and um, and sometimes insult, but he is not the man for the nitty gritty. And he criticizes the um, Iran deal, but at least the Iran deal has something written down and signed. There is actually specifics to it. And the um, this North Korean summit um, has no details. It has no specifics. It has no timeline. It has no restrictions or or obligations and it actually means nothing because nothing has been communicated and nothing has been agreed upon and there is no significance to a handshake if there isn't an agreement that you're shaking hands on and a lot of people have said uh supporters of the president have said well we avoided nuclear war um, I don't know. Uh, maybe we have avoided nuclear war in the like very near future, but um, they're not going to unless we give them a timeline. They're not going to, uh, and we can um, confirm that they have denuclearized. Then this means nothing. Um, do you think this has any value? This meeting thus far? Well. You're right. In in its own terms, it means nothing. But for us, it means a lot. Actually, we've g- agreed, or Trump is agreeing for us to give up the uh, the exercises, the military exercises um, that we have been doing with South Korea, 
that uh, for years North Korea has claimed is uh, provocative, but we've claimed is a um, safety measure. I uh, I don't have particular warm feelings towards military exercises in and of themselves, but if they were a safety concern for us, that is gone now. Well, I know that South Korea wasn't happy about that part of the deal, that we would stop military exercises with them. So that's being done somewhat against their wishes. Ellie? Yeah, going back to uh, what Ori said about this pageantry, you you know, it that's true. It, it really is, you know, this exercise of really just like, you know, this way of like, oh, we're kind of cooling things down, but this doesn't really change anything ultimately. Like, quote unquote, nuclear war is still on the de- like on the table. And, you know, and when you're actually like kind of, I agree with Violet, I'm not exactly for m- military actions, but at the same time, like when you're sacrificing the safety of, you know, South Korea, North Korea, frankly, if we're thinking about, you know, the average citizens of North Korea, as well as the United States, you know, that is my priority, I think, is also like quality of civilian life. So, and this kind of pageantry, just for me, it seems like a waste of time. How do you feel about... um the president's admiration for um, the supreme leader Kim Jong Un. Well, it's, you know, it's he, he's often taking the uh, stance of being admir- uh, admiring of uh, the world's strongmen and the world's dictators. He fashions himself out after them. He's expressed praise for the Philippines leader. He's uh, always expressing praise for Russia and for Putin. And uh, he, you know, he said admiring things now uh, in front of the world of uh, Kim Jong-un. And we know what kind of man Kim Jong-un is. We know what he stands for and what his family's regime has stood for, for uh, North Koreans. So, you know, Trump Trump has done him a favor, a very big PR favor. And um, I'm not exactly sure what his calculus is there, but it's... Uh, in terms of the world's uh, human rights records, it's not doing that any favors. Well, he's legitimized his rule, which a lot of people have decried because he inherited his job. And he continues to uh, treat North Koreans in the, same, in the same inhumane fashion that his father treated them. No, yeah. And and going on that, I wonder if it's a little bit of like Trump doing that as well. I mean, he's inherited all kinds of things. And then, you know, him getting into this, uh, you know, position as, you know, the head of the executive office, my thinking about him aligning himself with these strong men, I wonder if is is clearly an image tactic, this PR tactic, rather than, you know, actually getting any sort of foreign policy gone um, or getting anything done in terms of that. It's, um, but at the same time, it's like he's going against his own rhetoric of like America first if you're going to be aligning yourselves well at the same time with isolationist countries in a lot of ways. So, what I, the dig here is that also, you know, he left the G7 summit early so he can engage in this pageantry. And anyone who disagrees that this is pageantry only has to look at all the merchandise that was sold and all the t-shirts that were sold surrounding i mean singapore turned into basically what an olympic city turns into Mm. because trump and um two despot leaders were meeting and shaking hands and 
And and he did this and then skipped out on the climate change portion of the G7 summit. And to me, that um, there was no reason why he needed to leave it early. Um, I don't... Um, uh, he could have easily waited a couple of days. I, I don't think he does anything of great importance that's pressing that he needs to get to. And certainly, um, Kim Jong-un could have waited two more days um, since he doesn't really have too much of the upper hand on this. How do you feel about him leaving the G7 summit to engage in this, which is, his, I guess, his forte? Mm. I mean, it's a classic, you know, insulting Trump uh, stiff move, uh, you know, he um he does what he wants he's uh he's going to cut through all the diplomatic uh you know formalities and uh you know he's uh, he's trying to be a disruptor so he disrupts the meeting you know i um i was really sh- to move on to the next segment the um a judge ruled that paul manafort former trump campaign manager has to go to jail uh without any opportunity for bail the judge said that Manafort couldn't be trusted because of recent uh, witness tampering, which he says that he didn't do otherwise, even though there is tons of evidence that he engaged in witness tampering. Um, uh, before we get to the discussion, I, I wanted to explain um, how he, uh, they found out he was witness tampering. Um, he, used, he would use cell phones remotely used cell phones like uh he was using an uh, one that had an italian number for a while and he would call witnesses to coach them on what to say and they had secret words like Habsburg to initiate some sort of sequence and they also engaged in something called foldering i don't know if you read this but what it is is that um it's a uh uh emails that are in draft that they all have access to and they're not sent, but they but they put it in draft, and they can any these people can look at it, and they can also amend it and write stuff on it. And they were doing this, and uh, which they called foldering, and they were caught doing it. And it was done between several, um, some of them witnesses, some of them uh, uh, other people were involved. And this is also a way he was witness tampering and. Um, and he was also trying for his own bail, which was, I think, set at $10 million. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, he was um, trying to liquid, uh, trying to use property that was, uh, he had also used for money laundering and trying to also sign off some of his own personal possessions to family members so in order to be able to protect his assets. So... Do you feel I know I want to ask Violet to weigh in first because I know that she's been following the Mueller investigation. It's like her side porn. And um, <laughs> how do you feel good about this? <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> more, more to watch. Uh, you know, he's such a classic criminal. He's such a classic white collar criminal. You know, he's you'd think that they got him like he's going to jail. He was probably always going to go to jail. Um, but that wasn't enough for him. He had to engage in all of this backdoor creepy behavior, which is only going to hurt him more in the end. And, you know, it says a lot that this is the kind of person that Trump, though he's distanced himself now, chose for his campaign initially. But I think he's he's the kind of person we're seeing a lot of in and around the White House. Ori, do you think that the president will eventually pardon him? 
Well, these pardons have become kind of a very contentious topic. So I would hope that the people in his circle would advise him that pardoning a person who he's now said that he doesn't really have a lot of connection to, um, you know, even though he was a part of the campaign, I would hope that they would advise him it's not a good idea. Um, I'm just caught up on all of the kind of, like, clandestine efforts on the part of Manafort that have come out. Like, it seems like something out of, like, a, a spy movie or, or something like that. I feel like, actually, it was something that was in a movie, especially the foldering thing. Like, I feel like I've heard about that before. Um, it's just, it's interesting how in-depth they tried to go to kind of curtail people getting on about what they were doing. Um, but definitely doesn't look good. Whether or not he'll be pardoned, I I wouldn't put it past the president, but I also would hope that somebody would probably nudge him in the opposite direction. Allie? Uh, going off of what Ori was saying, I know Giuliani is denying, you know, these pardoning rumors, you know, in terms of Manafort from Trump, but However, looking at last week's discussion, you know, if he's talking about pardoning himself, why wouldn't he pardon someone that he's back and forth into, you know, how close is he communicating with him? How well, you know, like what kind of lore he was to that to him as well as, you know, how much information that Manafort had access to. And so um, and also Trump, I don't mean to bring in the president's tweets, but thinking about his response to to him going to jail being like, you know, he's not part of the mob. And I'm like, you know, no, he's not. He is exactly what um, Violet said, very white collar. Um, And frankly, my other kind of feeling about that, especially with the tweet, it reminds me of Sean Hannity's like, what about tactic that he's been using for years on Fox, which is like, what about Hillary? What about this? And it's like, that is doesn't really remove anybody else's responsibility or accusations against another and I know that Trump and many of his supporters use this as a defense. They say, well, he was only campaign manager for four months. But if you look at four months and then you look at the record of a lot of his staff, four months is a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's like the equivalence of uh, 10 years on a regular job. <laughs> right. So, um but I, I, I have serious doubt that he will face criminal charges because I feel like the way that Manafort is behaving, mm. denying everything over and over again, even though they're like, hold, uh, I, I just, it's absurd when people hold evidence out in front of you and say, look, you did this. We have all of you on tape doing this and this and this. And then you have the audacity to, um, to attempt to deny that you even did that, even though people are showing you evidence that you did. And to me, that behavior is linked to only one thing, that you know that you have an out on the other side once you get through the messy little part. Although, like, that he went to so much lengths, so many lengths to try and get out of this situation indicates he's not sure if the out's going to get him out, you know? Why would you do this foldering nonsense if you thought that just wait and on the other side you're going to get a pardon? Well, they flipped Gates, who was his partner. So... uh, if, if they flipped gates, he's in a lot of trouble. And it's his, I, I would have, if I was in his position, um, it's best to just tell the truth. I mean, I feel like he just gets himself in more and more, like how many more charges did he get? I think he got 13 additional charges as a result of witness tampering. Mm-hmm. And I feel, um, is he just a really uh, 
insistent criminal like i've always got to be a criminal no matter what i do or does he think he's going to get off and it's better to deny than admit or what's actually his thought process during all of this i think it's entitlement you know Uh, he knows what he does but he thinks it's okay you know he is entitled to behave this way and to have all of the things that he has Somehow he's earned them in his mind and he's going to do what he can to keep them. Speaking of entitlement, um, I'm sure that um, you've heard Sessions, Jeff Sessions, um, justifying separating illegal immigrants from their children using um, a quote from the Bible, from Romans. Um, To those that are not familiar with the Bible, um, like myself, um, it's the quote that, uh, instructs Christians. It's a letter from Paul uh, instructing Christians to obey, um, you know, the government, no matter what's happening. And um, and he's using that to separate um, children from their families that cross the border illegally. And they've lost nearly 1,500 children. And in many cases, the parents weren't even told the children were being removed. They would say, uh, one woman said that they wanted to take her photograph and do her uh, and and do her forms, and that the child would be allowed to have food or toys. And then when she came back a few minutes later after being done, the child was gone. And these are these have been related by many people, even though. Uh, uh, the administration has denied that they've been engaging in this. So there's no real way that we have been able to realize what's actually happening with this. And um, and just one, before we launch into discussion, just a, uh, there have been many interpretations to um, Paul's letter. And many historians have believed, biblical historians have believed that Paul wrote that because Paul knew that the authorities were spying on him and intercepting his letters. So he would write stuff in there uh, to be ironic at times and also to um, uh, also to cover up what he was doing. And so he would write that because um, he knew that these letters would be intercepted and he didn't want um, he didn't want trouble and he wanted the letter to be able to be delivered. So if he wrote stuff like, um, listen to the governor and do whatever you're told because they are adore, uh, they are um, God's representatives on earth. Um, but that quote has also been used to justify slavery, war, um, and many other human rights abuses. So how do you feel about Sessions using religion in order to defend essentially would be considered a human rights violation in any other country? Well, I think, so you make a good point about many interpretations of that verse, in addition, including the exact opposite of the way that we're interpreting it here. I think that if we get into biblical exegesis, though, we're going to totally miss the point. I think the point is that, A, it's very scary that they're using the Bible, one religion that's not representative of all of the United States and that's protected against in our Constitution, uh, to justify his actions, and two, that children are being separated from their families. Uh, in addition to the reports that they've been told um, they'll be getting toys, parents are also saying that they were told their children would be bathed, they would be given a shower, and their children are, are then taken away from them, which is the same thing that people in the Holocaust were saying. 
it, you know, one one atrocity mirrors another, and I don't even know where we're going when we're in this situation where none of us can stop children being uh, taken away. And there have been conflicting reports. Um, they say that um, the government won't say what the cutoff age is for the children that they take, but there have been reports that babies have been taken. And then, then there's a conflicting report from the administration that says they haven't taken any babies. So there has also not been any clear information from the government about what they're doing. Right. The PBS- this, story, this story has brought up a couple of different things as it's progressed. One, there are so many detention sites, many of which are privately run organizations that are holding people that have entered the country without documentation. Um, there are several sites, obviously, that are dedicated to holding children um, that have come to the country without documentation. Specifically to Sessions' comments, I really think it's, it's an interesting precedent to set because what, to me, what I interpret that to say is that the government you should just trust the government to do whatever it's going to do, and you should not question it because it's the government, and basically the government is what it is, and it, it is, you know, it has that power to do whatever it wants. And I, and I don't know if that's the way that they meant that to be interpreted or if that's the way that, you, you know, if that's what they use that quote for, but it does seem like coming at this point where many people are questioning the the policies around, you know, specifically separating children from their parents. You know, it's like, no, don't question us. Um, So I think that's a really dangerous precedent to set in a country where we should be, you know, holding our government accountable for the actions that it takes in our name. You know, we're running low on time, and um, Violet, let's go to the international news. Sure. So, uh... In international news, um, first off, pardon me, uh, this week UK factions are firing up about Brexit, both for and against, as British leaders are somehow still trying to get a final bill on Brexit through their parliament. Uh, Eid al-Fitr, the end of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, is coming up next week. Uh, It's a time for celebration in Muslim communities around the world, but it's also been complicated by an ISIS blast in Afghanistan and the assassination of a Taliban head in Pakistan. And um, so first off, uh, regarding Brexit, uh, Brexit is often understood as the first major shift towards populism. uh, And it was sort of echoed in a way uh, several months later by our own election and the rise of Donald Trump. How can we understand that the pro- the process that uh, the UK is going through now, uh, can we understand it through the lens of what's happening through Trump, or is it apples and oranges? Well, I think the difference here is that the Brexit was a referendum that mm-hmm. the people voted on, and it was a close one, but uh, it was voted in favor of leaving the EU. Um, and I think that's one difference, because I think that in our own country, we don't have a referendum that we vote on for, let's say, uh, immigration or uh, abortion or all these other issues that we are arguing about. Because I think if we did, um, we would. Um, I don't think we would have the same result. And I was shocked when the when the uh, when Brexit, the referendum passed. I couldn't even believe it. And I thought at such a close referendum, such a close vote, 
they might reconsider it or table it. And one of the big problems of the Brexit vote is that um, the UK isn't just England. You know, it's Northern Ireland, it's Wales, it's Scotland. And these countries that make up part of the UK are not, it seems, on, uh, on the same page as the central government is in England. And I think that's why you all, because you saw the, um, you saw the walkout by the, is it the Scottish, uh, one of the Scottish PM, uh, not the Scottish PMs, the, one of the Scottish House of Commons leader walked out after, um, um, after they were, uh, were trying to force them to vote. And they just did a walkout while the prime minister was there. So this is, um, I think, um, what it looks like to me is that England did not uh, properly think this out. They mm-hmm. voted on a referendum. They're like, oh, look, the numbers come up, no matter how sh- close they are, to let's leave. And I think that there was an impetus behind leaving that's financial. I think that they saw that they're, um, uh, they're financially strong on their own and that they actually don't need to be in the EU and that it might affect their currency because they're the only country in the EU that's a full member that hasn't completely gone over to the euro. And if that was an indication that um, England has uh, had their foot out the door, one foot out the door at all times, then I don't know what is. Um, They didn't even give up their currency. And so to me, it wasn't a surprise that they left. And it's just that they, um, the decision they're making, they made it look like the people voted on it when in fact, the truth is, is that they had this plan all along. Mm-hmm. So it, it speaks to what your, your point is in that this is sort of populism. Right. I think something interesting I heard when I uh, first read about Brexit and uh, its re- repercussions was um, an interview from uh, two women who voted um, for the Brexit. Uh, and they were, um, you know, they were working class, um, you know, lifelong uh British women who felt like they were getting the short end of the stick. You know, this is classic populism. They felt that uh, no matter what, the government wasn't going to be for them. And uh, and they they understood the ambiguous future of a Brexit situation. They knew it might not be good ultimately for Britain. But their argument was if we're screwed either way. We want everyone to to take notice. You know, we want to mess it up, not mess it up. We want to shake things up for everyone. If we're not going to be guaranteed safety either way, drain the swamp, right? <laughs> yeah, drain the swamp. Ori, what's your take on this? So I think even though it, you know, uh, I, looking at what some people have said is that we had our, you know, we had our own Brexit in the United States. I, I kind of agree with what was said. Is like it's a little bit different of a dynamic, but. Things have been happening in across Europe with regard to populism and nationalistic ideas that have kind of led a lot of these kind of changes across Western Europe. And I think that with Brexit, there was a lot of campaigning done by certain factions of the government to bring about this change, this separation. And we have to look at what are the motivations. You know, that campaign was very much run on, like, uh, putting the U.K. first, platform, you know, trying to have more regulation over immigration and refugees and things of that nature. Um, And it had a very big kind of, um, 
I don't want to, it's not white supremacist, but very, you know, Britain first, very nationalistic type of, of, of rhetoric um, as a part of it. And it did convey that to a lot of those voters that believe that things haven't been going well, especially for, you know, white Britons, and there needs to be a change that kind of centers that ideology. Um, I really do think it's an interesting point that they never did convert into euros. Um, they've always maintained the pound, and maybe that is an indicator that they saw this at least for the UK as something temporary. Um, but I, I wonder if they're actually going to fully go through with it, if they're having all this trouble actually getting it through a parliament. I just want to move on to Eid in the time we have, so we have a chance to discuss that. Um, you know, Eid is a joyful holiday uh, for Muslim communities. It signifies the end of the holy fasting month of Ramadan. Um, and uh, it's it's a positive uh, time. But at the same time, our news coverage is focusing not totally on Eid, but on uh on negativity and uh, continued calamities in uh, what's known as the Muslim world. Um, I'm curious, you know, uh, we just had the assassination of uh, a major Taliban leader in Pakistan, as well as an ISIS uh, uh, blast in Afghanistan shortly after a ceasefire was announced in honor of Eid and Ramadan. So... How do we how do we as media we are the media but we also follow the media how can the media cover give justice to what's a positive event in uh in a region in a diasporic uh region that's so often just totally uh equated with violence and death You know what well, I, I think first oh, go ahead No please go ahead Ori well, I think first we have to look at how we frame AIDS. We shouldn't look at it as something that happens just in the Muslim world or just in the Middle East. It happens all over the world. There are Eid celebrations that happen all over the United States. And if your local news media didn't cover a, you know, a fast or didn't talk about Eid or didn't speak with local Muslims, then we're doing a disservice to our community by not speaking about it inclusive within American culture. If we only speak about it as something that happens abroad, then we're not telling the full story. And we're not, you know, if we're not doing coverage like we do during Christmas about organizations doing good during Christmas that we would tell for, you know, mosques that are doing that same good during Ramadan, we are painting this portrait that it's not something that's within American culture. I completely agree with you, Ori, because it is a, Eid is a very, it's a joyful time. And one of the most amazing things to do if you're not a Muslim uh, during Eid is to go to, um, to wait until uh, the time the fast is broken and show up at a restaurant uh, um, that's owned by um, Muslims. There's a great one in downtown Brooklyn that's uh, an Afghani restaurant. And you show up in there like a few minutes before they're about to start because you need to get a seat. And the feasting, that happens. Like they don't even ask you what you want to order. They start just putting out plates because people are breaking fast. They haven't eaten all day long. And it's, uh, you know, and it's a tradition to go to one person's house during Eid 
in order to break fast. So it's not individual families just cooking. It's one person in a group of families who's doing the cooking. So in New York City, it happens at restaurants as opposed to one person's house uh, because they all live in very small, we all live in very small spaces. So in New York City, you go into these restaurants and it's amazing the amount of like joy and the children running around and the food coming out and, and the and the waiters eating also while they are, because they're Muslim too and they're breaking fast. So it's this joyful experience of breaking fast with other people and I highly encourage all New Yorkers to go out there and break fast at least once during Eid with your fellow Muslims. And I think that's really important. I, I've stopped um, depending on organizations and and our government to do things. And and I'm hoping that Just maybe... Full stop. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm hoping that as individuals, we could do better. I definitely agree. And it's a, a magnificent experience to watch. And to eat. The food is the best. I'm not kidding. You want to get good so food? Good. Yeah, the food is amazing, especially during Eid, because people are super hungry and they're excited to eat. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the World Cup. We're running out of time, but uh, in the time we have, yeah, uh, not the biggest sports fan over here, but I think it's interesting to watch um, sportsmanship take over for what might be uh political factions and uh nationalistic rivalries uh, so what are your takes on that i'm done watching the world cup my favorite team egypt after almost 30 years of not making it in but always being african national champions uh finally made it their star player was sat out and they lost at the end to uruguay so i'm done watching the world cup I was rooting for Panama because they'd never qualified before, and uh, Trinidad had also qualified last year when we covered it in the fall, and so I'm very excited. I haven't kept up with any of the games, but I'm here for the underdog people. And listening to the Saudi team sing before the game was also quite amazing, because I didn't... I don't associate Saudis with singing. Um, We're out of time. Um, That's all we have for the show today. Stay tuned for... Radio Free Brooklyn coming up. We have What is Love with Sasha Sugar. Check out all Radio Free Brooklyn shows online or through our mobile app available on iTunes and Android. And help Radio Free Brooklyn stay on the air by visiting our website at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and make a donation. Just click donate. For all of us here, thank you for listening to Objection to the Rule. See you next week. Happy Father's Day.